Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, the red wave was only a ripple. So what do the results of the US midterm elections really mean for America's relations with the rest of the world? It had been predicted it would be a bad night for President Biden. Elections halfway through a first presidential term traditionally haven't been good news for the incumbent. And yet, in spite of his very low public approval ratings and fears the Republicans are ready to strike, that's not what the voters provided. So where does that take the US as we head towards 2024 and the next presidential election? And what does it mean for Europe and indeed the rest of the world? Well, with me now are Victor Ash, former US ambassador to Poland, Andrew Bennett, professor in the Department of Government at Georgetown University, and Carol Lanou, Chief Executive of the Center for European Policy Studies in Brussels. Thank you, gentlemen, um, for, for joining me. Now, I'll start with you, um, Victor, because many were expecting a red wave. And what we've got is more of a, a red ripple. What does this mean, then, for the U.S. relationship with Europe? It, it, it means the Biden administration will have clear sailing. Not entirely clear. But um, if, if the Congress on the House side is unclear, then they're not equipped to challenge President Biden very effectively. On the Senate side, if it's a 50-50 vote with Vice President Harris Mayen, that's good news for President Biden because they can continue confirming his appointments to various positions and and pass legislation just as they have in the last two years. But if the House goes Republican, a lot of the legislation will never leave the House. Um, I think in terms of Europe, um, you know, generally the administration has the upper hand, whatever administration is, in terming foreign policy. Not a clear hand, but, but, but the upper hand. And that goes back to the Vietnam War, when Congress did challenge President Johnson, but it took many years before that, and the cutoff of funds before the war finally ended. Uh, in this case, I, uh, you know, the, the current issue is Ukraine. And uh, you have among the far left and the far right uh, questions about continued American support there. Uh, although I think the mainstream in both parties, and particularly that by Republican leader McConnell in the Senate, who's been to Kiev and is very supportive of President Zelensky and Ukraine, uh, may be different from Kevin McCarthy. And I'm not sure we know where possible Speaker McCarthy is because he's having to yeah. placate so many different factions within uh, a possible majority. I do want to talk about the, the conflict in Ukraine, the implications um, for that in a moment. But, but first of all, Andrew, you know, President Biden has said that Tuesday was a good day for democracy. How much pressure is there on the United States to, to show the world that it can do elections without all of the shouting and legal battles that, that we saw in 2020? Yes, well, of course, as you said, uh, the world is taking account of uh, the state of American democracy, not just who wins or loses in a particular election. In this case, after the January 6th insurrection uh, and a lot of the statements on the lead up to the selection, there's a lot of concern about that. There are as many as 170 different uh, members of the Republican Party running for office in the Congress uh, who were denying that uh, that Biden had legitimately won the election. So there's a great deal of concern. We had armed people surrounding polls because there's open carry where in some states where people are allowed to uh, wear weapons in the open. And there were people around polling sites and around uh, polling 
uh, depositories where pe people could put in mail-in ballots. And so there's a great deal of concern, and we had people who were running for secretaries of state in the various U.S. states, which means that's the position which oversees the integrity of our elections. And many of those people were Trump supporters who also denied that the uh, 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 that the election in 2020 uh, uh, was legitimate and, and claimed that there was fraud, which there was not. So there's a lot of concern about that. But what we've seen is most of those candidates running for secretary of state on that extreme position that there had been fraud in 2020, which there was not, they have lost. Many of the Trump-backed candidates who questioned the whole process have lost. And not only have they lost, they've acknowledged that they have lost. So instead of taking the Trumpian path of claiming that there was fraud in their own elections, they haven't said that. So I think that's that's one of the reasons that President Biden was was happy, not just with the results of the vote, but with the, that the process held, uh, that many uh, Republican secretaries of state, as in 2020, uh, upheld the process. And so I think that's a good sign for American democracy. It's not good that some of those candidates came very close to winning. So, it, you know, we've dodged a bullet here and we're not done with fighting against the disinformation in our electoral system. But for now, at least things have held together. And Carol, looking at the results, uh, is there anything that Europe needs to be worried about? Of course, we need to be continue to be worried. But of course, uh, first of all, at first sight, it's a good result, not to say a very good result. We see that democracy is alive uh, with uh, what the previous speaker said, let's say with, with Biden, what Biden claims. And I think that was the biggest um, concern in Europe, let's say, is it possible that these election and election results, as we've seen two years ago, could be faked or could be undermined by certain groups? But we see that these people, these Trumpian uh, congressmen, less have been elected than expected. So that's a good result. On the other hand, you have to be aware that there are increasing tensions, not on the Ukraine side between the EU and the US, but on the trade side and on elements of the Inflation Reduction Act, which are seen from Europe to be... Um, forms of state aid or to be distorting competition between the EU and the US or on the European market for European firms. So don't forget this. So meaning it's a good result at first sight, yes. But on the other hand, we have many problems, problems which are growing in the US now. And since this is a Democrat administration, they of course give reference to the local uh, concerns to the local public in the United States and may be a bit less concerned about the overall openness to trade of for the United States, which for a traditional Republican camp was the uh, priority. So don't forget, the Republicans in the past in the United States were much more for free trade before Trump than the Democrats. And what we see now also in the Inflation Reduction Act are elements which raise concerns in Europe. I do want to talk about trade a lot more, but first let, let's, let's come back to that issue about Ukraine and the United States funding for, for, for support of Ukraine. Victor, you know, European um, officials say that Republicans and Democrats broadly uh, agree, but how do you see the, the US role in terms of Ukraine um, and its funding to, to, to stay as we lead towards the 2024 presidential elections? I think President Biden's going to continue to be uh, strongly supportive of, of Ukraine. Obviously, there'll be talks behind the scenes as to whether Ukraine will negotiate with uh, Putin or not. Um, and, and we'll just have to see how that turns out. Uh, I'm sure the goal will be, is there some way of bringing uh, this conflict, well, it's war, to an end 
without uh, uh, harming Ukraine and the military gains that it's made. I mean, it's, it's nothing short of amazing and incredible what the Ukrainian people have been able to do uh, against a military that has turned out to be incompetent, inept, and corrupt, and, and you know, a paper tiger almost. But having said that, uh, I don't think President Biden's going to change his support of, of Ukraine. And I think the, the, the leadership in the Senate McConnell and Schumer are very pro-Ukraine. They both both have been to Ukraine. But if it's a three-seat or four-seat majority, that's not a workable majority. Every day will be uh, it'd be like having a vote of no confidence in Parliament every morning. Uh, I mean, it just will be incredibly difficult. But from Biden's standpoint, his enemies are fighting each other. So he really doesn't have to worry so much about it, other than they won't... Pay enact his legislation. So uh, you'll have a president having to act by executive order. And and if the Senate is, stays democratic, he can get his appointments confirmed. Andrew, it's an expensive conflict, though, isn't it, um, in Ukraine? Do you think there's going to be more pressure now on Europe to, to increase the contribution that it's making? Well, I think there will be pressure on Europe to at least be, you know, matching as it has so far, not not literally to the to the dollar or the pound, but matching in general the the U.S. effort. And uh, it's, and, you know, American leaders understand that Europe's going to have a hard winter with high uh, energy prices, uh, and it's important for the United States to continue to contribute as well to to. Uh, it's an example for our European partners to do that. I think, you know, leading into this election, there were a lot of headlines, both in Europe and the United States, worrying that if the Republicans won, that that would mean, you know, a significant cutback in American aid to Ukraine. I think that was overstated in the first place, because as, as Victor just said, if you look at some of the leaders in the Senate and in the House, even the Republican leaders, they've been pretty supportive of aid to Ukraine. It's true that of the opponents of aid to Ukraine, most of them were Republicans. When we had votes on aid in the spring, 11 senators, all Republicans, 57 members of the House, all Republicans voted against aid. But that still left a majority of Republicans in both chambers supporting aid. So I think uh, while, you know, American aid is for Ukraine has been so strong that it could only go down, uh, I don't think it's going to go down by much, if any. Uh, and I think this uh, election has uh, reaffirmed that. And Carol, what do you think um, from that perspective? Can, can Europe afford to match the US? Europe should afford to match the US. It has not done sufficiently over the last eight months, nine months. But it's going in this direction, and we are now with a package of financial aid only of being 8 billion, 18 billion. It's not yet fully approved. Let's say Hungary is blocking because Hungary wants to link it to other dossiers. But I think it will get, to, get through. Let's say the financial aid alone is extremely important. But also military aid-wise, the U.S. is well ahead of Europe. And also that we need to know, let's say, that Europe should do much more military-wise. But I think, I hope, and certainly what we see what's happening in Germany slowly, is that this big conflict in Ukraine is a huge wake-up call for Europe. Certainly to reduce its dependence on American military support. And we need to be standing on our own feet much more. I mean, if there is a change in two years in the administration towards a more Trumpian uh, model, then we should be extremely concerned. And we see what has happened with, uh, with Russia. So I hope that the Europeans are waking up and that we have a much more 
combined effort to increase our defense spending and to have a credible military, because at the moment we don't have a credible military, certainly not without NATO. Victor, I want to talk about how the U.S. strategic um, foreign policy is also um, changing. I mean, do you anticipate that the Obama-style emphasis of the U.S. focusing more on China rather than Europe might come back to the fore? Uh, I think it'll be more even-handed. Obviously, President Biden, as we speak, I believe is flying to Asia and Indonesia. He apparently will have a side meeting with President Xi of China, which is good. You know, obviously it'll be a difficult meeting because there's so many differences. We have to engage China. We have an outstanding ambassador there, Nick Burns, very distinguished uh, foreign policy uh, at, uh, and former ambassador to NATO. Um, and so the fact that you're engaging China, which you ought to be doing as well as South Korea uh, and, and Japan, doesn't have to be the expense of, of Europe. I mean, we have to do both. and. Um, I think that's where President Biden will, will probably move. And a lot of it, uh, you know, in this area, really, it's more the executive branch uh, that, that makes decisions. That isn't to say it's exclusive. Uh, and a wise executive branch keeps key members of Congress of both parties on board. Tom, what the outcome of the recent U.S. midterms might mean for the rest of the world. Still with me are Victor Ash, former U.S. ambassador to Poland, Carol Lanou, chief executive of the Center for European Policy Studies in Brussels, and Andrew Bennett, professor in the Department of Government at Georgetown University. Let's talk transatlantic trade. And, and Carol, I'll start with you. What concerns might Europe have about the direction of American trade and foreign economic policy? What we've seen and what I explained a moment ago is uh, in this famous or very important inflation reduction act, that there are elements in there which are basically supporting local industry at the expense of foreign competition. And the US has always been open to trade, open to foreign competition. There are elements in there which make it much more difficult for foreign companies to compete on the US market. There are also other elements which, on the one hand, the um, the recent results of the elections may be um, good because we are discussing also a huge corporate tax package in the context of the OECD, which uh, by which we want to come for large corporations to a minimum level of corporate tax globally. Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, has been out also in Europe, let's say, to support this. We were very uncertain in Europe until a few days ago, let's say, whether the US would uh, line up to this, yes or no, with a stronger outcome for the Democrats and say we may have it. The issue is that if we don't have it, we will have more frictions between the EU and the US on what we call the digital tax, because big tech is so strong in Europe. But there has been since many years already, certainly in a country like France, calls for much more taxation on big tech in Europe because they get a lot of the profits from Europe, but there's hardly any revenue for authorities here in Europe. So that's why we have been working on this digital tax. And to avoid the digital tax on big tech in Europe, we have been agreeing on a corporate tax deal in the context of the OECD, but it's very uncertain whether the US and US Congress will agree to that or whether what is agreed upon within the Inflation Reduction Act is close to what is agreed within the OECD. So that's an important other element as well. But there are other minor frictions here and there on the on the trade agenda, and I hope, let's say, they will keep us under control because the overall thing, the 
cooperation uh, against Russia and helping Ukraine in its war effort against uh, Russia is, for my part, certainly for the moment, much more important than these trade frictions. Andrew, I keep thinking about the recent legislation giving those generous tax breaks to Americans buying electric cars that are assembled in North America and those decisions around um, semiconductors and that market. U.S. policies that, that many commentators see as pitting American companies against those in Europe and Asia. Do you think discussions over things like that are going to be trickier um, if um, Congress ends up being controlled by the Republicans? Yeah, well, I would agree with Carol, first of all, that those what we call buy American parts of the Inflation Reduction Act are, are unfortunate, uh, because, not only because it will slow the uh, purchase of electric vehicles in the United States, which was the, the whole point of that part of the act, but because it sets these precedents of uh, not equal trade with our, with our partners. We've also seen the U.S. Uh, imposing sanctions on the Chinese because they were, they were engaging in unfair trade practices of artificially dropping the price of solar cells to sort of get a mono monopoly in that market. So there's certainly, you know, th this is the, the battle over the next world economy. China, the United States, Europe all realize that we, we all have to, to create a green economy and there are going to be winners and losers in that economy. And so we're seeing this new wave of competition. Indeed, you know, th this, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act in some ways is a step towards what economists call industrial policy, where the U.S. government is really intervening more uh, assertively in markets to sort of pick winners and losers. And that, you know, in some ways that, that's good to the extent that it really jumpstarts a green economy. In some ways it's bad at, in, to the extent that it distorts markets and, and uh, creates unfair competition competition abroad. So this is, you know, this is the uh, one round of what will continue to be a very contentious uh, trade situation uh, in, in world markets, in energy markets, in, in uh, green energy markets. And, and that adds on to the already high tension over trade that the U.S. and China have been having for some years now. And just keep in, and keep in mind, there are always domestic pressures on Congress and on the White House. Uh, from various industries who feel they're being shortchanged or China's being too difficult or uh, or the government has, in effect, weighed in on against them. Uh, and, of course, you still have the agricultural market that wants to sell goods to uh, um, to Asia, well, to wherever they can sell them. And um, so, I mean, it's, it's a situation that's constantly in flux. And uh, I, I think... It'll always be with us. It's, it's just how well it's managed. Victor, just how important is it that the U.S. looks to work with its allies in Europe and in Asia? Um, I mean, is that a consideration when I, it comes to the midterms, do you think? Or is it all about the domestic problems no, when it comes I, to voting? I, I, I don't think that was a factor in how people voted uh, um, on Tuesday. But I think it's incredibly important for the United States that we work with our allies in constant agreement. No, <clears throat> even in a marriage, you might disagree with your spouse, but you still stay married. And uh, the same thing, uh, you know, in, in this situation, I mean, you know, President Trump was correct in, in saying that uh, NATO ought to contribute, uh, individual country ought to contribute more. The manner in which he went about it was atrocious and, and, uh, and guaranteed antagonism. Uh, but I think as the Trump factor fades, and I think it is f starting to fade big time, um, you're going to see a different Republican Party. I don't mean to say it'll switch entirely, but um, 
they won't feel as obligated to parrot uh, the election denials and all this stuff that Trump has thrown out, which has no basis in fact. And people are feeling emboldened to come out and 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 you know say the emperor has no clothes. Let, let's talk about the, the, the green agenda. I know that all of you have touched on this in some way, but, but Carol, promises continue to be made as the global conversation on climate change continues in earnest um, at COP27. But the big polluters, like the United States, have been you know, shy about how far and, and how fast um, they can go. You know, if the relative Republican success in Congress drags on global climate momentum, how might that affect the pace of the EU's Green Deal? I mean, I think, again, as I said initially, the initial reaction of Europe is this is a comfort to us. And I think uh, this result is also for the Green Agenda a comfort because what you see, don't forget, in the US, US is a market-driven system. Which are a bit, we are a bit much more top-down, uh, very much regulation-driven. But you see already in the US, and you see this, for example, in the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission has no a standard for if you as a company, listed company, have green credentials, which you say, uh, which you add to your uh, whatever advertisements, that the Securities and Exchange Commission will check this. So, I mean, there is a market-driven wish to become greener also in the United States. But you see that authorities will start to check what companies are saying. If they say, I will want to be uh, net zero by 2050, whether they're effectively doing this. And if they're not doing this also in the US, we will see penalties by the SEC, probably even tougher because it's a very strong legislative in the US than what we see in Europe. In Europe, we have a strong commitment to a green agenda, but people still wonder if you don't, don't uh, live up to that, will there be strong penalties? I still have to see this happen. So uh, the good thing for me is that we see this market-driven approach. The U.S. also wants to become greener. Of course, it has a different structure than Europe, a uh, way to commit to that, let's say, by a legislative means. But uh, the people want to do it. And that is also what I see in this result, also the result on some other things which uh, Republicans have claimed on people's lives, etc., that people want to be listened to and don't, don't want to be dictated by a few ideologues what they should do, certainly within the Republican side, which have still deniers of uh, climate change. This is a good election result. Andrew, many would say um, that Europe failed to prepare for that Donald Trump win in 2016. And I wonder, could history repeat itself or is Europe less complacent now over a, a possible surprise in 2024? Yeah, I don't think anybody's complacent about a, a possible uh, second Trump uh, campaign for presidency. He, uh, a lot of uh, media reports here suggest he may announce even within a week or so that, that he's planning to run. Uh, in, indeed, there are reports that his advisors uh, uh, had to pull him back from announcing on the eve of the uh, midterm elections, which would have even given him even more ownership of the of the shortfalls of, of the Republican Party in that election. So uh, I don't think anybody's complacent against about that. But I, actually, the, the biggest winner politically in the Republican Party in this midterm election was not Trump. He, in fact, lost. Many of his, uh, the candidates he backed lost. His reputation has been tarnished. He, he pushed forward uh, candidates who won the primaries and became the nominee for the Republicans, but then lost their Senate seats because they were such terrible candidates. So he's really taking a lot of blame for the uh, underperformance of the Republicans in this midterm election. And the big winner uh, is uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida, who's uh, already become a rival for a possible nomination with Trump. Trump has already started to attack DeSantis. That's going to be a very 
uh, interesting fight to watch. Uh, so, you know, while we should all be uh, keeping an eye on the possibility of a second Trump campaign or even the possibility he could win the nomination or even the small, in my view, possibility he could win a second term, I think the more likely outcome from this midterm election is that it makes it much more likely that DeSantis will be the nominee uh, in 2024 rather than Trump. And Carol, in terms of the, the next presidential election, how, how do you think Europe should be preparing itself this time around? I mean, the most important thing what we need to be prepared for is just if there were to be a kind of a comeback of a Republican and a Trumpian's way, one way or another, that we are stronger on defense, but also that we prepare on the trade side. And we see what harm has happened, let's say, also for climate change agenda, for example, under the Trump time, let's say that we are prepared for this. Um, whether we will manage to make up our minds, I say that's uh, another question. Probably certainly on the trade side and on the climate change side, probably less on the defence side. It's interesting stuff, isn't it? Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to all of you. Victor Ash, Carol Lanou and Andrew Bennett, thank you. Sure. Thank you.